If you're looking to sell your private company's stock, SharesPost has a solution for you. With more than $4 billion in company-approved transactions, SharesPost is the leading marketplace for private company shares. To learn more, visit us at sharespost.com equity. Hello, and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast. I'm TechCrunch reporter Kate Clark, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex Wilhelm of Crunchbase News. How's it going over there, Alex? It's going really, really well. I am in the middle of what I believe is called fall out here, and oh, all the trees I'm just so drop their foliage all at once. Um, how's California today? It's been a rough couple of weeks. Smoke. I mean, it, the weather isn't lovely. It's like 65 degrees out today, clear skies, but... Would it kill California to grow some leaves? I want to see some <laughs> some red, some yellow, some orange. All I've got is like summer weather, day in and day out. Well, I don't feel that bad for you, but I do have to say I have plenty of leaves. They've all turned brown and now they're ruining my lawn. Anyways. They're beautiful. You should enjoy every moment of the fall you're experiencing. We should just swap for a week. Um, mm-hmm. Anyways, enough talk about the, uh, the change of the seasons. Uh, we have a really interesting show this week. We have some early stage stuff. We have some public marketing stuff. And we have uh, the story everyone expects at the end, Kate. So do you want to start with the early stage? Yeah. So I wrote a story this week about Quill. This is a Series A company, but I'd never heard of them. And they had been operating in stealth, meaning they just weren't making any public announcements. Very much early stage. And I wrote what I believe is probably the first coverage of this company, which claims to be a better solution to workplace communication than Slack, which is the tool that basically all of us use today. Yeah. So, so this is already raised a seed round. This is the series A and it was a $12.5 million A. It was a $12.5 million A and it was led by Index Ventures, which stood out to me because Index Ventures had been an investor in Slack since 2015. Certainly a venture capital firm that, that boasted its investment in Slack as it, have sh- as it should. Slack was obviously a very successful bet for pretty much all of the VCs yeah. in it. But the woman who led the round for Quill, Sarah Cannon is her name. She was a board observer at Slack. Now, I I flagged this all in the story because I thought it was interesting. I did not share any opinion about whether this is a conflict of interest, whether these are competing investments, and whether it's, I don't know, morally acceptable that she was on the board and made that investment. So I'm curious, Alex, what you think and what your impressions are. Well, it's 2019. (laughs) Are there any rules whatsoever left in the game? I don't. There really aren't. I don't think so. Also, like... Slack famously, as we covered on the show, extensively went through a direct listing like six months ago, give or take somewhere in there. So presumably people have had the chance to exit their investment. Maybe they have, maybe they have not. Um, But if they have exited, they don't own shares in a competing company. Also, everyone likes to invest in things they know. It's interesting. And there was a lot of Twitter commentary after I posted the story. Some people saying that actually being a board observer um, is particularly interesting because to become a board observer, typically you actually have to request that because a board observer is different from a board member. Oh yeah, You don't actually get to engage really in the conversation. You don't have any votes. You're sort of by the name, as the name suggests, you're an observer. So you typically have to request that position. So somebody on Twitter was like, oh, okay. So Index requested this board observer seat, sat on Slack's board as, you know, they were getting ready to go to list and then as they've listed. And then she goes and invests in a Slack competitor early stage and, and possibly uses a lot of what she had learned observing the board to mentor and kind of foster this company's growth. I mean, that's just straight up gangster. I like that. Um, but here's my question though, because you and I have used Slack we use it every single day of our life. We do. You and I have both used Convo, which is a less known workplace communication service. I'm curious, 
and I don't think we know this yet, but we don't know where, where Quill, this new product, lands in between kind of a focus on threaded comments, which is kind of convo, and a focus on IRC, which is kind of the Slack side of things. Right. So to me, like, I don't really know how directive competitor it's going to be for for Slack itself. Yeah. So so this company was founded by a, a guy by the name of Ludwig Peterson, who was Stripe's former creative director and his expertise is in design. He worked at OpenAI, which is Sam Altman's AI research firm, and he helped design the first iteration of what they've built. The company is not up to speaking about what they've built just yet, but I did talk to Sam Altman, who was the former president of Y Combinator, kind of about what he's seen. He's actually looked at their product. I have not. He says that it is sort of like a no frills Slack. It is more efficient. And I mean, you've, re- you've read the think pieces about how Slack has actually sabotaged workplace productivity because it is a distraction. And I, and I don't think it's sabotaged workplace productivity. I think it's made people more productive and helps them collaborate. But Amen. There, are, there are inefficiencies in the product and Slack has not done the best job. And I'm just sort of reiterating what other people say, but hasn't done the best job to continue developing the product in such a way that does minimize distractions. And I, I'm guessing that this company's thing is sort of like, we're Slack, but we won't give you 100 notifications a day. We'll give you just one. I don't know if I could do a whole day with one notification because I'd miss so many things. Mm-hmm. But Sam Altman, who led the $2 million seed round into the company, has a perspective on this. He's made a bet based on it. Um, Microsoft is part of the discussion. And I know we shouldn't spend forever on this one topic, but they have dichotomized internal communication to two chunks. Because if you recall, Microsoft bought Yammer back in the day, way in the pre-Slack era. Actually, Yammer yeah. was a, a TC disrupt winner from like 1412, if I recall correctly. Yeah. And they also have teams which competes with Slack. So they, they've cut communication into what they call, I'm trying to recall a conversation from a million years ago, inner ring and then outer ring. And they think that inner ring communication is more like Slack and teams and outer ring is more like Yammer. I would throw Convo in there as well. So to me, there's a distinction between what Quill might be doing and what, where Slack is. But I will say with 12 and a half million new dollars and a lot of hype, uh, they have room to maneuver. Um, last thing, Kate, we've covered Tandem a bunch from the YC demo day. Yeah, we have. Does this compete with Tandem at all or are those distinct things? That's a good question. Um, if, if I remember correctly, Tandem integrates a bunch of different sort of productivity tools and will compete with more than I think just Slack. So all the companies launching in 2019 or late 2019 sort of integrate a bunch of different things. Like they're like, oh, we're not only Slack, but we're also Airtable. And oh, we're also graphic design software too. And like, you can also use us instead of Google Docs. And that's fine. That's just sort of the new era of startups. And, you know, we've talked about this before. We're seeing the bundling of all these different tools. And soon again, we'll see the debundling. It's just a cycle that we go through every few years. It's like bundle, debundle, bundle, debundle. Yeah, I mean, it's, we're watching this in slow motion with content right now, but between Tandem and Notion HQ and Quill and a bunch of other companies, it is kind of a golden era style explosion of like early stage-ish productivity focused SaaS companies. And I'm really stoked to see which one's the best because I'm sure we're going to end up using it down the road. Yeah, and one final thought I will say is Slack was the first company to create a really you know great mainstream solution to workplace productivity, collaboration, chat software. Um, but that doesn't mean it will be the winner in the end. Yes, it's gone public. That's great. But Microsoft launched its workplace communications tool years after Slack, and it actually has more users than Slack's does. And it's too early to say we have no idea if Quill's any good. It could be crap. But a startup could be the one take that market. We just don't know. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. We will be talking about this space, I'm pretty sure, like, at least once a month in perpetuity until all these companies eventually go public or die. But we're going to move on to something a bit less on our beaten path. It's not a SaaS company, shockingly enough. It's a company funded by a prior guest of the show, Maha Ibrahim, 
It's called Manny Me Kid. You wrote about this and it is awesome. What is it? Yeah, it's a little bit off my typical beat, but I like to occasionally write about beauty startups because they actually do raise a lot of money and they don't get a ton of attention from the tech press. My guess is because there's a lot of men in the industry, both in journalism and in tech. So not a lot of interest. I am someone who gets my nails done like mm, twice a month. So I was just kind of curious to see if this was something that like I could personally enjoy, which is not the case with enterprise SaaS, email tools and Slack, workplace, whatever. So, um, you know, sometimes it's fun to dig into these things. Anyways, Manny Me is a company that is using 3D imaging to create custom fit stick on nails. So basically what they want to do is make it so you don't have to go to the nail salon ever. So you just kind of do this thing at home a couple times a month and it takes five minutes. I mean, I, I have not used this either. I think they're going to send me some so I can try it. But they said that these nails will last 10 to 14 days and that, they, you know, they're not going to fall off and that they'll fit your nails perfectly, which is a great concept. And it's exciting. If it could work, it could save plenty of women time. Although I will say there is a huge industry, multi-billion dollar industry around salons and the idea of like wiping out these nail salons, which are run mostly by immigrants, immigrant women is not the most exciting, but they did say they think they could work in partnership with salons because they could just have the beauty technicians apply them. So yeah, there's a lot going on there, but I think it's, it's interesting. What are your um, impressions? Okay. So I want to, I want to break down some process here because um, as one of the, the boring men who doesn't know much about beauty stuff, I want to make sure that I have this correct. Mm -hmm. So you send in a, like a photograph of your hand? Yeah. So you take five five pictures of your hand on a white card or like a white piece of paper. So they know the, the size and shape of your nails. From that, they use gel sourced from Korea. Where are the founders from? And it is a non... So the, another actually important point here is there's not there's no dangerous chemicals in this stuff. And actually, most nail salons, including probably the one that I've been going to for like over a year now in San Francisco, has a lot of very dangerous chemicals that women just breathe in, including the people that work there. And it, it is dangerous. Yeah. And the New York Times has done a bunch of stories on this, actually, and quite a terrible, terrible problem. So this this is something that actually is a big differentiator because there are women who seek out non-toxic salons. I'd never have done that. I probably should. But I mean, you know, it costs more money to stay away from chemicals that are going to like fuck up your lungs. But these, these are, are they stick on? Is that what mm -hmm. this is? Are they like, okay, so essentially I send in five photos of my hands on a, on a white background. Yeah. They process that with their backend software. Do, do I then select styles that I want my nails to look like? Is that the way this works? Yes. Yes. That's, uh, thanks for reminding me. So they have, um, I think this is interesting. They have a ton of designs on their site they're going to have. Um, they're only just launching, but they'll have all these things. So, you know, if you want like polka dots or like pink or blue or something like that, you can just pick, but they've actually, they're going to be partnering with influencers, specifically nail influencers, which are, which are a thing, if you didn't know, who can then sell their own art on this company's platform, which is, which is interesting to me because I've, um, I've been, sort of separately exploring the influencer space from a startups angle and mm -hmm. monetization of influencers in, in all sorts of ways. is very fascinating to me. So this is a really cool opportunity for people who have been making no money being, being nail influencers on Instagram to actually sell their art, which is exciting because that's a pretty tough hobby or whatever to, to monetize. Yeah, no, I, I think it's a really good point. The influencer angle is going to be fascinating. There's been articles written lately about how influencers are losing their actual ability to monetize their influence as people try to figure out what Instagram followers are worth and so forth. But um, Manny Me, this company, has raised a $2.6 million round. They are going to be into the market pretty soon. And the, the nail sets cost between 15 and 25 bucks, which, as you wrote, is roughly what it costs to go to the salon, but maybe it's faster, so it's worth it. So I think this is great. Right. You're not going to be saving money doing this, but... Yeah, but I mean, if it's faster, you know, I mean, saving time is great. And also, uh, I recently learned, actually, I had talked with a friend of mine last night about this, how big the beauty industry is. Like, I mean, I was... Mm -hmm. 
there, if, if you're a dude who has no skincare routine, which is me, you don't realize how much skincare products and any sort of beauty related routines cost. It's incredibly expensive. I started paying more attention because I just hang out with my wife a lot when we go shopping. So I just looked at things. I'm like, haha, that's what that costs. Interestingly, um, the the nail salon or nail services market is actually a bigger market than male than the male grooming market. Just the salon nail salon market is bigger than the entire male grooming market. I believe it's about it's something like eight or nine billion versus eight, seven or eight billion. It, it's close. It's close. It's it's very. It's actually very comparable. But I didn't know that. And and I mean. This is what Manny had in our conversation I had with the founders. This is what they told me. And I was kind of like, huh, that's, <laughs> that's, that is very interesting. I mean, for one, manicures are expensive, but I would think that men spend more on like deodorant and face wash and stuff like that than women do on getting their nails done. But no, that's not the case. And, and obviously men and women do get their nails done too. So there's, there's just more of people probably engaging than with just male grooming products. But by the way, if society wants to keep letting men look like trash all the time, that'd be great. It's really <laughs> lovely. Uh, the only actual, we need to move on, but the only we downside do. to this company, Kate, is that the two founders met at business school and it was one of our two regular foils. It was Stanford in this case, but we can forgive that, I think. It's kind yep. Of a company. yep. Yep. Hey everyone. Don't forget this episode is brought to you by Shares Post. All right. Uh, let's go from the seed stage all the way north to the public world to talk about a company that got punched in the face uh, this week, which is Grubhub. Um, for those of you who are young, Grubhub is the kind of the original place where you would go online and order food and have it delivered to your house. You didn't have to leave. Uh, or at least the first like online version that really hit massive scale in my experience. These days, it's being you know challenged by DoorDash and Uber Eats and Postmates and companies like that. It had one of the worst weeks it's ever had this week. And the problem was that it reported earnings and immediately lost about 40% of its value. Huh. And a number of very large banks, analysts, departments uh, slashed their ratings from buy all the way to sell and dramatically curtailed their share price targets because the company uh, missed expectations and forecasted very slim growth. And Kate, if you're a public company and you do those things, your value collapses, more or less. Now, I bring all this up because they had an investor letter that was, at least from their own perspective, very honest. You can disagree with what they said. Some people have reached out to me after I've written about this and said, they're wrong, fair enough. But Grubhub outlined um, some issues with the market. Uh, they discussed, without naming them, competitors like DoorDash that have a lot of money. They talked about the expanding world of uh, food delivery and kind of the on-demand space. And essentially what they've said is that the, the pace of growth of food delivery on demand is going to slow. That this era of insane growth and in that is kind of come to an end and we're going to see much more moderate expansion in the market. And Kate, my read of this, kind of bringing this story back to our world that we talk about, um, it could imply that companies that are highly valued right now, DoorDash, Postmates, et cetera, that are valued on growth could see their natural growth diminish. And I'm curious if that could put them under pressure. The other side of this argument, of course, is that, you know, Grubhub could be inept and, you know, DoorDash very, very savvy. But, you know, it struck me as reasonable that the natural growth would have kind of run its course by now. But I'm curious what you think hearing all that kind of in one big paragraph. So are, is what you're saying, you think that given all the information you just went over, Grubhub was overvalued and will they see a big slash in their market cap? Or what are you saying you think will happen? Well, I'm just curious if the decline in growth that Grubhub is seeing can be correlated to the private companies that are challenging it for its market dominance. And, and if we, what we're seeing from the public markets will trickle backwards into the private markets, will DoorDash 
endure a slower growth rate? And then if it does, does that really mess up its valuation, which is high and predicated on relatively quick growth? I think certainly all the on-demand companies have and will, con- well, maybe won't continue to be, but have historically been overvalued. So yes, I think that what anything that happens to Grubhub, which is a leader in the category and one of the companies that is public versus a lot of its competitors that are still private, it will have a really big impact impact on them. And I think don't you see some parallels to WeWork, which was valued like a technology company, despite being actually a real estate company. And now they are, their valuation has been brought back to reality. And it's what, $8 billion versus $47 billion? Well, it's an $8 billion set by one of its prior investors. So it feels like an arbitrary figure. Set by whatever arbitrary metrics they use. Yeah. And then when you, when you look at these um, on-demand delivery companies, similarly, this was an era in which companies were valued very highly because it was a really innovative time when we sort of birthed uh, the demand economy. And so I think because of that, the companies born during that time have really benefited. I think Postmates slightly yeah. different. They have a lower valuation. Um, it's higher now. I think it's 2.3, something like that. That sounds about right. Yeah. yeah. So it's lower, but I talked with the CEO of Postmates at Disrupt and he even said that like they at times would have liked a higher valuation and didn't really have the ability to get it with all the competition in the space. But DoorDash is worth a ton of money backed by SoftBank, right? $12.6 billion after their last $600 million round, I think, Kate. So a lot of money. So, yeah, I mean, so why when, what, why did this story catch your attention initially, Alex, um, and get you to write this post? Well, I mean, uh, you know, we, we always look at private companies. That's kind of what you and I do. And the downside is private companies don't report earnings. They don't tell us much. They don't tell us their gross margins. They don't tell us their gap net income. And so we're constantly scraping around the edges with like funding rounds, some revenue growth numbers, some comps. Uh, it's hard. It's hard to tell what's going on. So when Grubhub d- describes the on-demand food market, which is a key pr- part of like Uber's business and Postmates and all these other companies, um, and says it's going to slow down dramatically, I sit up and go, oh, shit, that might actually impact these companies we do care about. Anyways, we've probably gone on too long about this. But if you have time over the weekend and you're feeling very nerdy, I would recommend going to Grubhub's uh, investor uh, relations page, dig up the shareholder letter and give it a read. It's an interesting document uh, if you care about money and companies in general. Uh, and it might help you understand uh, the impending IPOs of DoorDash and Postman's which have to happen eventually. Yeah. And I, my final thought too, is just that I, I, you do a really good, great job of following the public markets and earnings. I do less of a good job because I'm so much more interested in like companies that are worth nothing and just building, but the public markets, but just have a huge impact on startups and trends and how companies are valued. So we just, we should all pay attention to that. So the good way to sort of predict what's coming. Yeah, the best way this was ever phrased to me was, I think, by Jason Limkin. He's told me once that uh, the startup market is just the NASDAQ on steroids. So you can kind of like figure out what that means for startups uh, pretty easily. That's true. Okay, let's talk about some stuff that isn't going as well, if you will, among some private companies, one of which is WAG. Now, WAG, Kate, uh, I'm sure we all recall, is a dog walking service company, if you will, that uh, the Vision Fund poured several hundred million dollars into I think $300 million at a valuation of 650. So SoftBank bought in just a little bit less than half of the firm. Wow. Yeah. I don't think I knew the valuation. Are, wait, they, they paid, they invested 300 million at a 650 million valuation? Uh, if, if my memory and our notes are holding up, yes. I guess I just didn't cover that, but I didn't know that until you just said it. Oh my God, that's crazy. Uh, the old joke that startups die of indigestion, not starvation, seems to be kind of at play here. Uh, according to a Wall Street Journal story, SoftBank and WAG are pursuing a sale of the company for less than $300 million, So there's going to be an enormous mistake to, uh, to be kind of like figured out here financially for the backers. Uh, it has about $100 million in cash left on hand, which implies that it's burned through several hundred million dollars 
while growing more slowly than Rover, which is kind of its kind of natural competitor. It's it's Lyft to its Uber. If you want to use kind of different comparison, um, just I mean, I, we saw this coming, right? I mean, I, can I just repeat some of what you just said because this is mind blowing. This company raised three hundred million dollars from SoftBank at a six hundred and fifty million dollar valuation, which means SoftBank owns half the company. Just about. And now SoftBank and WAG are looking to sell the company for less than $300 million. According to Bloomberg's reporting, yes. That is an epic failure. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's not great. I just wanted, I just want to make that really clear. And it's interesting because you, you mentioned Uber and Lyft. You kind of draw that comparison. And I, uh, WAG and Rover seemingly are not like Uber and Lyft because one of them seems to be doing a lot better than the other. And one of them is a Seattle company. And that's Rover because they're from Seattle. I'm rooting for them. You're not biased at all about Seattle. Not even nah. slightly. Um, <laughs> but, but I mean, okay, going back in time to when this round was announced, like uh, I recall being skeptical because it didn't make any sense. I had a similar reaction to what you just had, if you will. And people said the only way this works essentially is that if WAG can go in there and deploy this capital in such a manner as to just push out everyone else and take over and use it as a financial moat, that was the play. Use cash as a way to build that competitive edge. And so far, I don't think it's just gone that well. I don't think that works as people expect it to. So um, we can scoot on from this. I wanted to bring it up. We've talked a lot about other companies that have struggled. This is another example of that. There have been layoffs at WAG and um, I, I, we're going to be tracking this one carefully, but uh, pivoting very gently over to a company called Katerra, K-A-T-E-R-R-A, another vision fund backed company. Kate, what's going on? Yeah. So I don't know um, if Katerra gets a ton of coverage. They are a company that's sort of rethinking the future of construction and they are backed by SoftBank. I think when this happened, I want to say maybe 2017 when they landed SoftBank's backing. Late 17, early 18 is my impression. Yeah. 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 I think I was, I don't think I was at TechCrunch yet, but they, I remember this um, being, I was intrigued because I didn't think this was necessarily a company that SoftBank would funnel a bunch of money in, but indeed I think they invested like a billion dollars. So there was a story in the information today talking about how they've been dropping out of projects. Spokesperson for Katera told information, well, actually, that's normal. That's part of the day-to-day of the industry. I mean, I don't work in construction. I don't know. There's also been more than 100 employees have been laid off. I think the big theme we're seeing at SoftBank portfolio companies is a lot of layoffs. I'm guessing that there's been some encouragement from SoftBank to sort of help these companies slim down expenses via layoffs, which of course is a natural step. But it's all happening at once. And it's pretty much the worst possible PR you can have as an investor for like your entire portfolio to be laying off hordes of, of people pretty much at the same time. I think it's, it's definitely bottom three worse. It's probably better to have your CEO embezzling money, get caught and fired than it is to have to lay off employees because the former implies one person's bad behavior. The latter implies the business made a mistake. And that's not a good place to be if you're trying to put yourself up as kind of an operational genius. But- in August of 2018, the information had another report, and I'll read you the headline, Kate. Inside the struggles of a soft bank-backed construction startup, talking about Katera. So I feel like this is like not the first chapter in this particular book of struggle. This is like the second or third. And again, same point. Big, a lot of money did not have the, the expected results. This is why, by the way, some VCs will invest $2 million and then $12.5 million, as you saw with Quill, because the company has to scale up to be able to kind of accept and use the money efficiently. Mm-hmm. It's, it's too bad. I, I wonder if these companies could have done better without the excessive foie gras style funding process. Well, one, one day we may find out, maybe this, the executives at WAG in five years from now, we'll, we'll talk 
more honestly about this period and whether they think when when WAG did raise that round, pretty much everyone immediately was like, that's not a good idea. The company is so early. Three hundred million dollars is a lot of money. Unless you're very experienced with raising that kind of capital, you probably aren't going to know how to deploy it. I mean, if someone gave me a million dollars, I wouldn't know what the hell to do with it. So, I mean, three hundred million for a dog walking startup. I remember when this happened, I remember my dad just like peppering me with questions and being like, what the hell are people doing investing in this dog walking company like I could make this company. We don't need $300 million to make this company. Okay. All that's totally great and and, and and true, except for the, you don't know what to do with a million dollars line. I mean, come on. Surely you've had that thought at least once. Like I know what I would do. One, buy a McLaren Senna. Uh, two, crash the McLaren Senna. What is that, a car? Yeah, it's a car. It's, uh, it's, um, crash the- <laughs> I mean, like I would, I would immediately have a lot of fun if I didn't. You can't even buy a house here with a million dollars, so it's like not even in, in the Bay Area. A million dollars, like. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta move. I hear Seattle's great. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. All right. Anyways, the point is, uh, one last point on Katera. According to the story we were reading, it's approaching two billion in revenue this year. So even though there have been struggles, there have been layoffs, there have been issues, the company has managed to reach very material revenue scale, and it shouldn't be diminished. We should bring that up. But another crack in the great wall of the Vision Fund, if you will. So now we're going to close out with a little bit more on that. And if you are tired of hearing about the Vision Fund, we understand. But this is important for everyone out there who tracks the late stage markets on the private side to understand why the winds are changing. So there has been a number of stories out, I feel, in the last couple of weeks disclosing or detailing really changes of the Vision Fund, uh, changes in their sentiment and how they're approaching investments and that sort of thing. So uh, the, the style of investment that we've been talking about, the WAG, of the Vision Funds portfolio appear to be in the past. According to uh, Winkler over at the Wall Street Journal, who's a tremendous reporter, Mashir's son or Master son is telling people to push companies to generate more cash, to scale back the super high risk investing, and really focus on corporate governance. Things that you would expect after the WeWork fiasco. So this is kind of a good response to that. Um, less Zoom pizza, you know, more Slack is kind of my impression of the changes that's going to be happening over there, Kate. Do you think this is going to surprise some companies that were hoping to get money from them and now might not? Or is this mostly Vision Fund 2 signaling uh, in your view? I think it's the latter. Do you, I mean, do you think a lot of... Uh, if, if, you're, if you're a company that's relying on cash from SoftBank, it's not a great position to be in. I think companies that are backed by them are aware that they're not sure how things are going to go. I mean, I still think SoftBank will raise a lot of money for the Vision Fund 2. I mean, they already had a lot of commitments. I know that that doesn't necessarily mean much unless the money's actually, you know, in their bank account and they can really deploy it. But I do think they still will raise a lot of money for Vision Fund 2. I'm not sure if it'll, if it'll exceed $100 billion, like I think reports had said it might. Yeah, there are reports that could be anywhere from 100 to 150, depending on how you counted uh, Middle Eastern possible commitments. Right. I do think there'll be Middle Eastern commitments. I think, um, do I think Microsoft and Apple will still? I'm so, I'm very curious about some of those some of those entities that did sign on of kind of, you know, to the second vision fund like Microsoft and Apple, which I think caught us by surprise at the time. I'm curious if they will continue to support SoftBank. They do have a bad track record. Yes, they they have. If you look at their portfolio, there are investments they've made that don't appear to have had any issues, but many of them have or are experiencing issues right now or are overvalued in some form like DoorDash, which, you know, seems to be doing just fine, but is worth a lot of money and may have a really hard time when it does transition to, to public fair.com, like we talked about last week, right? I think they laid off yeah. half their staff nearly. Yeah. But here's, here's the flip side of this. The vision fund has put money into over 80 companies. We talk about seven of them, give or take eight, 10% tops, 15% tops. 
what I need to do, and I haven't done this yet, it's an intellectual exercise that's kind of a failure as me as a reporter. Um, I need to go better understand the other 70, 75 that they put money into, because I think you make a really good point. And it would be, it, it'd be an embarrassment to you and I if we covered the mistakes and we covered none of the successes and it winds up being a fund that does better than we, we told everyone. So that's, that's to come. But I think certainly the news in the last six months has been uh, less positive than it was in the preceding six months. And that's what we've been talking about this the way we have. Yeah. I mean, they're still going to have a lot of money to invest too. I mean, they probably have plenty of capital in Vision Fund 1, right? They, is that, has well, that been deployed completely? I know. I know they've invested a lot. <laughs> there was a period and I think, twenty again, 2017, in which they were making so many deals. I remember covering like three deals per week, each deal being like hundreds of millions or even a billion or north of a billion and just being mind blown because they were completely altering the landscape of venture capital. And I think we've become a lot more numb to that now because not only has the Vision Fund continued to prolifically invest, but many other venture capital firms raised humongous funds so they could sort of similarly strike deals like that. So now we've all become numb to it. But I guess the question too is, is moving forward, if SoftBank does raise a bunch more money, will there be companies that uh, will look to these failures like WAG and be like, well, I don't want $300 million from you. I'm not selling you half my company. Well, I don't think we're going to see any more of the $300 million for half the company uh, situations. But I will say that um, $300 million is $300 million. And that has 300 million reasons why you should take it. And so I think that money is still going to talk in a very material way, because fundamentally, I have seen no flip in the private markets regarding CEOs wanting to go public sooner than they have been, which is very late. So I think while that still remains the kind of like MO of the startup world that you and I cover, SoftBank will always have a place to go because they will, they will write you the biggest check the fastest. And that is worth a lot to people who don't want to do another year of fundraising. So you don't think there'll be as many lessons learned from this entire saga as could be? Okay. When does anyone actually ever learn a lesson for more than like five minutes? I mean, like, I mean, like look, look at the leverage loan bubble that's happening just 11 years after 2008. I mean, no one ever learns. Everyone gets greedy. Everyone forgets. And uh, that's why capitalism goes through booms and busts. So, I mean, we will see what will happen, but I think money will still be the most attractive thing you can offer a, a founder, um, especially as uh, the market gets a little bit worse, a little more tenuous, but we should stop um, for the week. And uh, so thank you, Kate, as always for hanging out. I'm really excited about Manny, me and Quill and less excited about the big companies, but we'll see how everyone gets on. That's why I cover early stage. You picked the right side of the market and I picked the wrong one. All right, I'll see you in a week. Bye. You can find us on Twitter at Alex and at Kate Clark Tweets, or you can email us at equitypod at techcrunch.com. And we are now on YouTube. Watch the full episode on the TechCrunch YouTube page. And if you really want to support the show, please rate us and review us on iTunes. And you can also subscribe to our podcast on Spotify and all the other places where you get podcasts. And a big thank you to our producer, Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickovet, and we will see you all right here next week. Oh, don't answer the phone. I'm trying to game. All right. That's a dial-up joke. All right. Okay. I'm, I'm ready to wing it. Yeah. That's what the people come it. for. They just want to hear us sound tired and confused. <laughs>